If you want to earn money, don't make music. If you want to earn money, go and work in McDonald's. You'll earn much more money there than you will make in music. Hey, streamers and dreamers. My name is Otto Kent, and you're listening to The Week by Telecom Electronic Beats. It's Thursday, November 7th, and this is your weekly update on music, culture, and what's next. For starters, here's our top headline. Join us, as always, after the deep dive for the other news turning our ears this week. Making music is depressing. December is for reflecting, and a new study by the Musician Census in the UK has given me pause on a big topic of the last year. The Mental Wellbeing Report revealed that 30% of the 6,000 musicians it polled are experiencing poor mental health. Dance music is the worst affected genre, with more than a third of people saying they struggle with their mental health. And those numbers are even higher for musicians from marginalized communities, jumping to 43% of the LGBTQ musicians and 49% of musicians with disabilities. All of these statistics highlight the harsh reality of what it's like to pursue a professional music career in 2023. Why is there such a strong correlation between music and mental health? Our guest this week, Dr. George Musgrave, is an expert on the subject. Musgrave is an academic based at the Goldsmiths and the University of Westminster. He studies the psychological and working conditions of creative careers. And he's the co-author of Can Music Make You Sick? Measuring the Price of Musical Ambition. It was the largest ever study of mental health in the music industry. And it seems like the answer to the question in the book's title is yes. In light of the latest mental well-being report, I wanted to speak to George more about the sorry state of musicians' mental health, what his research has revealed, and how we can all contribute to change the situation. Hey, George, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I I think you might be our first doctor on the week. Okay, so, very nice. Just make sure you don't have an actual medical crisis. Yeah, <laughs> okay. So. All right. So I won't, I, I'll just leave all the regular stuff for the real doc. Um, <laughs> exactly. I'm going to start off our interview with the burning question that I'm sure you've had to answer over and over in the past decade. But is it getting worse for musicians? It's hard to reach the conclusion that it isn't getting worse principally because so many of the features that contribute towards musicians' anxieties and musicians' poor mental health relate to things that are um, intensifying in in veracity around competitiveness, around digitalization, around abundance, around competition. And given that all of those things are being amplified by practices of digitalization, it would lead one to conclude that they are worse. But I wouldn't be able to accurately pinpoint that with data because I don't have longitudinal studies. But my inference would be yes. Well, you know, that's a big reason why we had you on the show today, because over the past year, there's been a lot of news. And what we can make of it is either the press is becoming more attuned to the idea of mental health generally and that it's a more clickable story or like we just asked you, it it might be getting worse in a way where people need to be paying attention to it because we're actually going through some kind of medical uh, crisis. I think think both of those things can be true at once. There certainly is an increased awareness of the topic, but I think simultaneously, I think a number of features, um, particularly over the last couple of years, 
um, I, I would say have amplified a number of the features that we've been identifying for the last couple of years. So you had COVID and what that did to the music industry. You have um, these ongoing conversations around streaming and streaming royalty rates and what that does to musicians' incomes. The collapse of the live music industry during that period during COVID. The amplification of the experience of competition. So I think all of the things that you've suggested can be true at once, certainly. Yeah, I... I actually, uh, during your answer, was reminded of this TikTok that I saw this week of this musician who very deadpan does the joke of like how cringe it is to promote music these days. And they make this quick quip about how their favorite musicians never got online and said, oh, I think I made the song of the summer. And (laughs) they particularly talk about Tom York, who I feel like is such a iconic example of a tortured artist in the last, Mm -hmm. you know, 15 years of music, but someone who also has um, paved the way for how as a musician to to follow this uh, more bleeding heart idea of what music is for a musician and how they should navigate an industry around selling their art. And so I think uh, a bit of what you've been hinting at as far as these factors uh, has to do with the, what you say, competition, which I think for most average listener is the way in which the internet has changed the landscape for how artists are trying to get paid and getting their music heard. So if you, if you want to talk a little bit more about these factors of influence that um, are part of this mental health of musicians that you've done studies and written about, do you want to expand a little bit more on what those factors are? Sitting underneath a lot of this and that drives so much of this is this notion of abundance and this notion that as music became digitalized and became more, uh, in economic terminology, we'd say the barriers to entry lowered, meaning more people could participate in this market. A number of people very enthusiastically heralded this as being democratizing, as being this kind of X-factorification of music where you could walk into a room as, you know, Harry from Cheshire and stand in front of Simon Cowell, and like Clark Kent in a phone booth, you become Harry Styles. And, you know, anybody can do it, and you're only three minutes of magic away from gold. And this led everybody to very enthusiastic, herald musicianship as being a good thing. Alongside literature, which talked about music making as being good for your well-being, much of which is, is very good literature, which shows you that. But what happens is, is that digitalization and competitive abundance is actually quite a Janus-faced experience in that, yes, you know, perhaps it's never been easier to participate, but it's also never been harder to be heard. And so what you find is this ferocious volume of musical competitiveness taking place, whereby seeking to be heard alongside musicians' expectations that they will be heard and that they can be heard and that they can create a career. And the notion that you can create a career became an industry in and of itself with people selling people workshops and panels that everybody could go to about how if you put adverts at the front of your YouTube video, suddenly you'd be Nicki Minaj. And and the fact is now is that there's, a, there's so much competitive abundance and you're not only competing with musicians today, you're competing with every musician that's ever released music. I mean, who are the musicians that are the most popular musicians on um, streaming platforms and the highest selling musicians? The Eagles, like Herod, Bob Dylan, 
you're not you're not running the 100 meters against the quickest men in the world you're running the 100 meters against the quickest men that have ever run ever um uh, to use that analogy so sitting amongst all of this is the concept of competitive abundance and sitting then on top of that are the factors that we've then come to delineate in can music make you sick and in other studies that we've done um which I can I can sort of give you a brief pricey of, or I can focus on some of the, the principal ones. I mean, one of the ones that we've been able to isolate quite precisely is the concept of whether or not you feel you are successful or not. So when you ask musicians to fill out um, things like the HADS, which is the Hospital Anxiety and Depression Scale, and then you ask them whether or not they think they're successful or not, the ones that feel they are successful have better well-being. But the point is that what success is, is entirely subjective. If right. what you expect is performing in Las Vegas at 100 date residency right, and right. you're only performing in front of 300 people in a bar, you feel unsuccessful. But if your goal is to perform in front of 300 people in a bar and you're performing there, then you feel successful. Right. So these things are completely subjective, completely bound up with identity and genre and career trajectory and all of these types of things. Um, it's hugely messy, but we, um, yeah. Would you say that success in the eyes of a musician has also gone through a transformation of more options and abundance of ideas of success over the course of the last 70 years of music? Like the well, traditional idea of what was successful in the origins of rock and roll and jazz days has changed. And when independent music became as cool or cooler than being a pop star, that also redefined ideas of success. So within those uh, varying versions of what success can mean for a professional musician, has that just widened the work that you do or has it made it clearer as to what the problem is? I mean, I, I think it's a really interesting question about, yes, whether or not the changing nature of career musicianship and the increased, or at least apparently increased optionality available to musicians has changed the notion of success. I mean, again, that's one of those things where on the one hand you thought, you know, historically in, I don't know, the 1980s, like what might success look like for you? You're either signed to a major or basically you're not. I mean, there's a kind of, it's difficult to kind of eke out a career as a kind of uh, independent musician. The, the challenge today is that there's this kind of um, notion that, that in having those apparent increased levels of options open to musicians, there's this notion that like actually eking out a career as an independent musician is somehow viable. Whereas, in fact, really the data shows you that it's not viable. It's just that everyone seems to think it's viable. And it's not that all of the changes that have happened in the last 10 or even 20 years have been terrible. Many of them have been wonderful. Um, but they, they do create, in many respects, a kind of false and misleading narrative that says, well, become a, become a musician because it's a viable career and you can, you can earn money doing it. If you, if you want to earn money, don't make music. If you want to earn money, go and work in McDonald's. You'll earn much more money there than you will making music. <laughs> you have heard it here. I mean, that was exactly what my next question was going to be was, and, it, and it's, a, it's a hot topic, but I'll ask you again, should people be pursuing careers in music? And I think you defined it in a particular way, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a very, very difficult question. And it's a question that I've 
actually struggled with myself recently because up until last year, I used to co-run this master's in music business. And obviously there are all these students that come there. I mean, not all of them are musicians. Many of them want to work in music. I mean, in many ways, that's still a crazy idea as well. But, you know, whatever. It's, it's also wonderful. So, you know. Um, but in terms of, you know, should people be pursuing a musical career? I mean, I've got two kids. If they told me that they wanted to become a musician, would I encourage it? I'd say get yourself a decent backup, mate. You know, because it's, you know, the no, I mean, the, the odds are simply not in your favor. I mean, you know, you, you want to, if you want to get money from doing something like that, go to Las Vegas and put a hundred thousand on red. I mean, music, music is gambling. I mean, in many respects, we, we've got a paper that's just been accepted that's coming out soon, which draws this analogy, which basically says musicianship is analogous to gambling in many ways. And so people would say things like, well, you know, yeah, go on Bandcamp because Bandcamp's going to pay you more than Spotify. Yeah. But the thing is like if, Hundred uh, getting a hundred percent of income from ten people, yes, is better than fifty percent of income from ten people. But it's still only ten people. Mm. So there are there are just thousands and thousands of people competing for the attention of consumers who, frankly, now don't have an attention span that's allowing them to sift through all of this content. Because who could possibly consume the amount of music that is uploaded to Spotify, Bandcamp every day? You know, now it's like historically it would be like let's go and buy an album or let's listen to this lp now it's new music friday every every friday you know music is not a pair of glasses that you wear to help you see anymore it's a pair of contact lenses that you wear one day flush away and put a new one in how are you supposed to market that how are you supposed to make that sustainable why do you think all of these artists are on tiktok crying about the way that they market their songs because I'm telling you, the people that do music marketing haven't got a bloody clue <laughs> how to do it. Because what they're basically doing is throwing out content into a sea of consumers, desperately hoping that people will listen to it. Because oh, they haven't got I a clue how to advertise it. I absolutely agree. As someone who has done uh, probably half of my life in music marketing, show marketing, and all of the likes, and have uh, stuck around from the first days of social media to now, where the AI and algorithmic world that we live in that gets increasingly more difficult to understand every day has made it even less possible for you to feel like you have a foothold in how to market music. I think there's such an interesting analogy, and I can't wait to uh, see this paper that you guys are publishing about um, risk-taking and uh, this analogy between uh, being a musician and being a gambler is something that uh, makes a lot of sense to me and probably will make a lot of sense to listeners who are working in the industry or have tried to promote their own music. But I'm actually curious to ask you more about what the listener, someone who isn't a musician, what your perspective on the, the role of a listener is in the music landscape after all this research that you've done. The notion of what role does the listener play, I think it's complicated because in a, in a way, in, in, in the whole landscape of kind of media, which music is situated within, the fact is everybody is drowning. The producers, the consumers, the companies, everybody is drowning and they are just trying to swim along and figure out what it is that they want, they want to, you know, consume or produce or engage with or whatever. Um, I think you find when you ask musicians about the good bits of their work, of which there are many. I mean, there have been, I, I saw this paper came out not that long ago that was saying like, well, you know, 
this guy's just characterizing musicianship as being terrible and it's like oversimplistic and whatever. It's like, hold on a minute. No, that isn't what I've said at all. There's much about career musicianship that's wonderful. And when you, what's really fascinating is there are a number of studies when you speak to musicians where they have extremely poor levels of uh, extremely bad mental health, but high levels of positive well-being and job satisfaction. It's a really fascinating paradox because, of course, they love what they do. Like musicians speak about it through the prism of romantic love and all this kind of stuff. But and one of the things that's so beneficial that they speak about is that connection with audiences is that notion when they talk about you know connecting with audiences either on stage or getting feedback from people about the role that the music plays in their lives in a way like that's the thing that they're doing it for in in lots of ways like yes they're all you know everyone's got to pay rent and everyone wants to go and eat in pizza express every now and then instead of just eating chips every day but you know there, there are all those like prosaic ordinary financial things but when you ask musicians the things that they love and that give them that joy it is that is that connection and so in some respects, the digital landscape facilitates some of those forms of connectedness. Mm. Yes, it's more abundant and yes, it's more complex, but it also allows you to be contacted and say, hey, I've just been having a really difficult time and your song really helped me through this. And, they, and that's hugely valued. In the flip side of that, it also allows people to message you and say, hey, you're a dickhead and I don't like your music and you suck. So <laughs> it, it's, you know, it, it sort of everything gives with one hand and takes with the other. But the role that audiences play in the mental health and well-being of musicians, I think, is it, it's something I'm going to think about perhaps after this interview because perhaps it's a it's a prism that I've not um, really thought about this question through enormously. I certainly haven't empirically studied it, um, aside from in the small way that I've just mentioned there about the audiences are the like it's almost like the audience is the joy, you know? Yeah, but absolutely. The, the, chal the challenge in the abundant marketplace is finding the audience because you know, the audience is drowning too. It's funny because the reason why I asked is because this year we've had a lot of studies come through the editorial team that focus on the benefits of music for listeners. And then on uh, the flip side, we've had a huge year of studies that highlight the plight of musicians. And yeah. so it's interesting to discuss this idea that there might be an imbalance, which maybe is just reflective on what studies are being um, done and how they're being positioned in the media. Yeah. But then there's also the idea that, I mean, my takeaway from this discussion about the well-being of musicians and the industry at large is that for musicians who are in a position to feel like things are helpless and from all of that's been said on this interview and in studies that there's really a lot working against them to the point where what is it that they can do to not only increase their uh, quality of life, but also change the system? Yeah. Maybe put down some of the responsibilities of making a full living as a musician and pick up some responsibilities of trying to make a change in the system as a whole. Yeah. I mean, the, there's a, there's a lot in there. So the first bit relates to this kind of duality or what I've called the, this paradox that exists um, between studies which show music as being music as being beneficial for listeners, but essentially as being detrimental for producers. Now, the thing about that paradox is that that paradox, of course, well, firstly, that paradox is very real. You know, the literature which shows it as being beneficial for, for listeners of music is very real. And I, I, I have no reason to doubt much of the literature coming from that area likewise there's a lot of literature which also shows it as being beneficial for producers in lots of ways the challenge though is that much of that literature on the benefits for producers 
is around things like singing amongst the elderly who have dementia in care homes or people that ring church bells in churches or singing community choirs for whom they never intend to enter the popular music industry in inverted commas because it doesn't mean that to them. The music making means something completely different. Mm. The, for the musicians who are pursuing it as the, their career, their well-being outcomes are terrible. Now, the, the problem that I find is that I think all of those quite well-meaning studies which show music as being beneficial for their well-being are almost being, I don't want to say like weaponized, but they're certainly being misplaced by people who are using it to encourage a participation in music making as being only a good thing. Because frankly, it's not. There is a lot about career musicianship that is beneficial. Like, it's really important to say this because people otherwise are like misunderstanding what I'm saying because around identity construction, around figuring out who a person is, around emotional attunement, around social cohesion, friendship creation, or, you know, belonging, all of these things are very real. Like, there's no question that they are. But the thing is, if you're doing this artistic practice because you hope that it provides you some kind of financial sustainability and that you can create a career in inverted commas as we might understand a career as being a teacher or a fireman or a policeman or something, the odds are it isn't going to do that. Like the statistics are just blunt and brutal and it creates a huge amount of loss, particularly around notions of a possible self, what in psychology we call a possible self around who you imagined that you might be when you grew up, you know, and all mm. of that stuff. That's very hard to do. And it's very hard to do in an educational context as well. I mean, imagine we ask people to spend in the UK like 9,000 quid a year to come to university for three years, leave with 50 grand in debt and say to them at the end, hey, by the way, you know the best thing you can do? Don't do this for a job. <laughs> Just play, like, play it for fun. Like jam, like jam with people, like DJ in your room, get people around, have a few beers and like, you know, you can you can do like have ciphers where you like drop bars and rap, but like you're not going to be Jay-Z, bro. So probably just park that. That's hard for people to cut. You know, that is a very tough sell. It is. It but is. Reality, but I think the takeaway know, might be, is it a tougher sell than a lifetime worth of depression, anxiety and poor mental health? You know, it's well, like, what's the price tag of either? And I think that's a big uh, takeaway from the research that you guys are doing. And a lot of these studies that are coming out is that uh, science and awareness creates a better understanding of a, a way of life that could be better. And, yeah. and uh, musicians are in a rut, the ones that really, truly only have that as a, as a form of means that could be sociopolitical or uh, it could be just being born with a true gift. And then there's a whole lot of other people, like you said, who are being sold the idea that that is their future and um, need to become just more aware of how much of a cog in a machine they've become as opposed to yeah, and it's, a true calling. And they are very, very hard questions. You know, like the thing is, is like I gave a talk about musicians' mental health at a college in, I think it was in um, Belgium a couple of years ago. And I never forgot how like this 18-year-old like kid at the front, like who, I was like, right, so any questions, right? And this kid like put his hand up and he was like, right, so should we all just quit then? Yeah, <laughs> is that what you're saying? And I was like, well, hang on a minute, dude, because like, I'm, I, I'm not saying that because like we need people to dream we need people to, you know, like have you seen that Kanye West documentary that was out on Netflix or, you know, G, you know, Jesus or genius or whatever. I can't remember what the title of it was, you know, and you, you look at the, the true 
unabashed optimism of him just walking into these record labels, walking into Rockefeller or Def Jam, just rapping to people like, I'm going to be Kanye West. I am going to be on this billboard in Times Square. I'm going to be the biggest star in the world. Now, in a way, we need people with that kind of delusion because that leads to the things that it's led to. Now, okay, he's ended up putting a balaclava on and saying Hitler had good ideas. So let, but let's just part that mad element, right? Um, and note that yeah, I love we that need study. people to do that kind of incredible dreaming. Like we, we just do. Um, and so we, we don't, I don't want to like discourage people from that dreaming because I think that would be awful in a, in a lot of ways. But similarly, for too long, music has been imbued with this kind of optimistic smile economy that says, hey, come and join in and I'm so pleased to be here and I'm so happy to work at your record label for penance. And, you know, and I'm so happy to be paid peanuts and eat cheese sandwiches to do this crap internship to have Universal on my CV. And I'm so pleased to have my song on Spotify that no one's listening to. Well, do you know what? There's a lot about this landscape that's going to be terrible and we all need to prepare for that. And if for some people that means stepping away, for me it meant stepping away. I was signed to Sony. Like I was a rapper signed to Sony. Am I Stormzy? No. Am I Drake? No. Maybe I'm just a better university lecturer than I was a rapper. And do you know what? That's okay. Like Absolutely. rapping was not going to buy me a house. Absolutely. And maybe I'm a better podcast host uh, or interviewer than I am a DJ. So we might have that in common. Um, and, and those big life changes are terrifying, but people do them. They write books about them that are musicians. They do them in every single field. My, my family was also famous for doing pivots in their 40s to different careers from being creatives. We could talk about this. Honestly, for hours, you've been an incredible interview. And uh, thank you so much for all of the work that you're doing to show people that there needs to be a change and for being very candid about it, because obviously you've got some flack about that. <laughs> cool. Thanks so much for having me. And now back to the news, continuing with something a bit more cheerful. Positive Mental Health Outcomes from Music The UK charity Youth Music published its own survey of 16 to 24-year-olds assessing the impact that music has on their well-being. The results turned out better for audiences than for artists. 93% of people surveyed said that listening to music and or reading lyrics serves as a therapeutic tool. It also helped them process difficult feelings and emotions and reduce their sense of isolation and loneliness. This kind of research is especially important in the UK given there are reported difficulties in accessing mental health care via the NHS, as well as recent funding cuts to education and youth services. So music becomes an essential coping tool for young people. Retired detective as new nightlife mayor. In recent years, New York and other major cities like Amsterdam, Paris, and Berlin have established lobbying organizations or official government positions to help govern the city's nightlife. The idea is that there is one person in charge who is an advocate for nighttime economies within local politics and can connect different groups to find sustainable solutions that benefit both businesses, artists, audiences, and residents. In other words, a balanced mediator. 
That's why it's so strange to report that the new head of the New York Office of Nightlife is a former detective of the NYPD, not a group known for being on the side of club culture or the communities that sustain it. This ex-cop, Jeffrey Garcia, previously worked for the NYPD's Organized Crime Control Bureau and is the president of the New York State Latino Restaurant Bar and Lounge Association. Garcia follows Ariel Palitz, a former club owner who first held the position when it was established in 2018. And given his record, Garcia will likely stand up for bars and restaurants. But do we really think that a former NYPD detective is the best person to guarantee the future of vibrant clubs, venues, and nightlife in New York City? The city's history of punitive policing doesn't inspire much confidence. Calls for new EU rules to regulate streaming. We've talked endlessly about the power and politics of streaming platforms. Individual companies control far too much of the say on who gets paid what. The biggest issue landing on niche artists. Now the European Parliament's Culture Committee wants to do something about it with new rules for music streaming in the EU. These aim to create more transparency in streaming service algorithms and force platforms to pay music producers and rights holders better. To achieve this, the members of the parliament are calling for a new EU law to better regulate the sector. MEPs are also calling on the EU to invest more in European music directly, including local and niche artists or artists from vulnerable communities, to offer a more diverse repertoire and support creators. The initial vote on this is planned for January 2024, so we will see what happens. This week, I want to recommend a DJ mix. I've been ruminating a lot on the rise in DJ content in the last couple of years and how many DJ mixes go online but only have a shelf life of seemingly two or three weeks tops. But a great mix or radio show, regardless of its release date, should be as fresh as the day you first hit play. That was my reaction to this Rinse FM show by deep drum and bass artist Note for the North Quarter back in September. An inspired mix of electronic and organic sounds, Note does a takeover for the label's residency show, and the sheer amount of IDs I craved for over the two hours made it my new favorite find. I will put a link in the show notes. So that's all for the week this week. Thanks for locking in. I'll be here next Thursday with a special end-of-year celebration episode. Hit the subscribe button if you don't want to miss it. And until then, take care and remember to stop scrolling. The Week is a production by Telecom Electronic Beats and ACB Stories. ACB Stories.